All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Domenech Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com, and I hope you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, my friend who has written a new book, March to the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, along with his friend and colleague, Joe Gaylord, who was key to the 1994 revolution that is the focus of this book. What you may have heard me talk about in the past on this podcast uh, is my degree of interest in all of the things that came before that revolution. Essentially, a more than decade-long uh, series of, of efforts on the part of Republicans to understand and uh, learn the methods of communication necessary in order to achieve what was a really historically unthinkable thing at the time that it happened, the Republican majority of 1994. What Gingrich and Gaylord write about in this book is essentially a guide path for how this was achieved, but also something that reflects on the current moment in politics. It's the kind of book that really, I think anybody who is interested in running for office should read because it really is a, a lesson guide, a cookbook, uh, you know, a, a manuscript that is designed to help you learn the tools necessary, many of them timeless, uh, that will help you communicate better with your constituency, help you understand the uh, priorities that you ought to have as a candidate, and really, I think, attune yourself to the things that matter and not get distracted by the things that don't. Uh, Newt and I have a conversation about this and many other issues as well, including uh, the effort by Kevin McCarthy to get the debt ceiling deal over the finish line and what went into that. Uh, and Newt has some thoughts on that as well, as you might imagine. House Speaker Newt Gingrich, coming up next. Mr. Speaker, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, I'm delighted, Ben. I always read the transom and I love your work. And so this is a great honor for me. I want to talk to you about your book, uh, The Real Story of the Republican uh, Revolution, March to the Majority. Uh, but I, I want to first ask you your opinion, obviously, of these past several weeks, um, even months of machinations on Capitol Hill which obviously resulted in this uh, McCarthy uh, uh, brokered agreement that has now resolved the debt ceiling issue until 2025. Uh, what's your perspective on how that played out? What's your big takeaway overall uh, after after things have settled? Well, I mean, part of it goes back to why I wrote March the Majority, which is that there are principles that work. Uh, McCarthy started out very early, said we were going to have a negotiation, we're going to have a cut in spending, managed miraculously to get that very narrow margin of Republicans. Remember that only, on average, only 16 percent of Republicans vote for a debt ceiling increase under a Democratic president, 16 percent. He actually got the, the conference, with the, only four exceptions, to vote yes on a bill that would have raised the debt ceiling. And the reason that mattered was he was then in a position, and it shocked, I think, the Washington establishment. Because he could then say, look, the only bill that exists that's going to raise the debt ceiling is the House Republican bill, which cuts $4.8 trillion in, in spending. To his credit, Mitch McConnell, who had negotiated many of these deals, promptly said, McCarthy is now in the lead. McCarthy is our negotiator. And so the center of gravity has shifted to the House Republicans, who are much more conservative than the Senate. Uh, Biden made two mistakes. 
One was that he said he didn't want any changes at all. Well, at the at America's New Majority Project, where we do lots of polling and which is available to anybody who wants to look at it at, at americasnewmajorityproject.com, we knew 24% of the country agreed with that position. Now, if only one out of every four Americans is on your side, Lincoln once said, with popular sentiment, anything is possible. Without popular sentiment, nothing is possible. So Biden starts out in a position where he's down three to one. Then he doubles down by saying, I'm not going to negotiate. Well, the country is so sick of pure partisan brawling that they actively want a negotiation. So here's McCarthy for 100 days, every, and, and he did a great job, very un-Republican-like, much like Reagan uh, and Trump, to be fair, uh, of, of talking to the press every day. I mean, every time he would walk out of his office, he would chat with them, and he kept saying, Two, great message discipline. We don't want a default. We have a bill. I'm eager to negotiate. And he said that for 100 days. Finally, inevitability sunk in. Biden said, oh, I guess we will negotiate. <laughs> Well, that's initially a psychological victory. And then Kevin, who correctly understood the principle that only he could negotiate with the president, and the president was the only person he would negotiate with, uh, promptly said, you know, a couple of rules here. No tax increase, period. Off the table. Not going to do it. There has to be some spending cut, period. There have to be some policy changes, period. Now, our staffs can negotiate the details, but we're not going to break out of that rule. And... Ultimately, in between visits to his home in Delaware, um, Biden, you know, ended up saying yes. Now, I keep telling people uh, when they say, but I summarize my judgment. My answer is really simple. If this is a first step, it's a pretty good deal. If this was the last step, it's a terrible deal. But if you go back and look at what we did, we got to four consecutive balanced budgets for the only time in your lifetime. And we didn't do it by a giant – unlike Mao, we didn't have a great leap – you know, the, the, we had a step by step by step. And I think next you're going to see uh, the House Republicans produce a budget that will be in balance over a decade. Then you're going to see the continuing investigations. That's then going to lead to huge fights this fall over the appropriations bills. My, my guess is every single appropriations bill, all 12, will be fights. Uh, because Republicans can now use the investigations to target waste and corruption. And can say we're cutting out the, you know, a good example of my, my favorite right now is eliminate the FBI headquarters. Three and a half billion dollars, a building bigger than the Pentagon. Now, it's exactly the wrong direction for the FBI. Yeah. And that'll be a great fight. And the country will probably be, I'm guessing, but because we haven't actually tested it yet. My guess is it's 80 to 10 in favor of not of eliminating the building. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that, uh, sticks out to me about this that and what you just ran through is the talking to the press, the message discipline. What I what I kind of realized after he had done that for a little while was there's a defect, there's a problem that the Biden White House has, which is that I think that a lot of Americans crave normalcy in this moment. You know, they don't want the fractiousness, they don't want the feeling of the world seems chaotic enough without our politicians being chaotic. And I think that one thing that that McCarthy did very well was kind of establish this kind of normal rhythm of talking to the press, staying on message discipline, while 
with Biden, they can't do that. It's actually abnormal in terms of his behavior because he doesn't talk to the press, because he doesn't take questions, uh, and because he doesn't interact with them and he gets out of town every weekend. That That's a huge disadvantage. And, and essentially, McCarthy took advantage of that opening to you know really have good message discipline and, and treat the press in, well, in a way that I feel like really made a difference this time around in, in establishing psychologically uh, that, oh, the Republicans... They don't seem that crazy on this, and they've already achieved something in terms of, of passage. They don't want to default, uh, and and that I feel like was uh, was something that almost took the White House by surprise that a Republican leadership was capable of doing that. Well, I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, in a poll this morning, fifty eight percent of the country said that they it's a good deal that they support it. Fifty eight percent is a pretty solid number in this particular day and age. Second, and, and McCarthy all the way through this had higher numbers than Biden. And and McCarthy's support in the country had grown all the way through it. Second, uh, I would say that Biden's press secretary is the second least believable person in the White House after Kamala Harris. Uh, so, you know, so he's sending out to talk to the press somebody that nobody believes. And she says things that are so blatantly untrue mm-hmm. that it's, you know, that it, it undermines every message they're trying to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, let's shift to your book, which includes a lot of different lessons that I expect, uh, you know, apply not just to this moment, but also uh, to this Republican Congress and future ones. Uh, March of the Majority tells the story uh, of how the majority was achieved in a way that I think really hasn't been told before in such a comprehensive way uh, and looks back through both the, the life experiences that, that you had that led you to the work that you did over, over uh, you know, an extended period of time from, uh, from 1978 on and, and uh, in order to achieve uh, what was such a historic revolution. There are a lot of people who feel like revolutions like that happen overnight. And, uh, and I think that what you really do with this is tell a story that shows all the different steps that had to be taken to get there. Overall, you know, what were some of the key moments that stood out to you as being instructive uh, in making a difference along the way to that triumph in 94? Well, I mean, let me say, first of all, that I think uh, Joe Gaylord, who was my partner in this project, when we sat down to write March to the Majority and we outlined, you know, 16 years of effort, 1978 to 1994, and then four years of negotiating with Clinton and getting him to move so far that he ends up coming to the State of the Union and saying the era of big government is over. Then he signs welfare reform. Then he signs the biggest capital gains tax cut in history. And then he signs four consecutive balanced budgets. That process, when we when we outlined the book, we frankly got exhausted. <laughs> I mean, and I'd say the first thing, the, the, the most important trait was cheerful persistence, uh, that you had to recognize every morning whether you made it or not that day, you're going to stay cheerful and come back the next day and just keep doing it until you won. I'd say second, it, it's impossible to overstate the importance of Ronald Reagan. Uh, first of all, Reagan had the first Capital Steps event in 1980, which I helped put together. He had a contract in 1980. David Broder wrote a great column about the courage it took because normally Republican presidents ran away from being Republican. And Reagan was asking every federal Republican candidate to come and stand with him to run as a team. Uh, which, of course, paid off in huge ways. We won the Senate when nobody thought we would. We picked up seats all across the country. We 
we had a big jump in our house, but we were so we were so far down that even when you gained a lot of seats, you still couldn't get to a majority. So I would say Reagan, both in terms of what he did and how he did it, and there I always recommend to people Tom Evans' book on the education of Ronald Reagan about his years at General Electric, because it really helps you understand what he was doing and how he did it. I'd say second, the principles. If you take the contract with America, there's not a single item Reagan wouldn't have supported. I mean, we were standing on his shoulders. So both in terms of, of technique and approach with the contract standing on the, on the steps and in terms of the substance, uh, we were the continuation of the Reagan revolution, which unfortunately George H.W. Bush never understood, never supported, uh, and ruined his presidency, uh, breaking his word about taxes. Uh, so we were, we sort of picked up where Reagan had left off. And for four years, we very aggressively reformed Washington. And the country supported us. I, I would say one of the biggest things where the Washington establishment doesn't get it. We closed the government twice in a fight with Clinton. The news media said, oh, this is a terrible mistake. This is nor And they'll tell you today, you know, the, the Republicans always lose. We were the first elected Congress Republican House in 40 years. We were the first re-elected Republican House in 68 years, not since 1928. And I say to people, let me understand this. We closed the government twice. We proved to our base that we were totally serious. Uh, the country re-elected us, and you think we paid a price. I think if we had caved, we would have become the third Republican Congress to be elected for House to be elected for two years, because I think we would have lost in 96. Instead, we initiated, after 40 years in the wilderness, we initiated what turned out to be a 12-year reign. And in the process, and this was hugely important, we taught House Republicans you could be a majority. So even when they lost in six, by 2010, they were back winning. Uh, and when they lost in 18, by 2022, they were back winning. Uh, that would not have happened without the 1994 election and without the 16 years before that. I have to ask... How did you find the letter that you wrote uh, about building a zoo? Oh, we, we, uh, first of all, I, I have one of the greatest researchers I've ever worked with in Rachel Peterson. And uh, I said to her, I'm pretty sure that this was printed in the Harrisburg Patriot News in August of that year. And then I'm pretty sure you'll find it in the archives of the second verb. The first was the, art, the article in August was actually my talking to the city council. And then about six months later, I'd gone to, I'd been sent to visit a state legislator who was going to run for mayor. And he showed me a, a book from the uh, famous uh, Tiergarten or, or zoo in Hamburg that he'd gotten before World War II. And he spent enough time for my family's vote. And then he sent me off to a wonderful guy named Paul Walker, who ran a weekly giveaway newspaper. And I walked in and I said, you know, I'm 11 years old. I walked in and I said, I'm here to talk to you about a zoo. And he said, if you'll write it, I'll print it. And I said, I, I, don't, I can't type. He said, well, there's a manual typewriter right there. If you write it, I'll print it. If you can't write it, you're not getting it printed. <laughs> so I sat down and over the course of about an hour, I typed out that letter. And Rachel went back and found it in the archives. Uh, and uh, that's such a pull, man. That's that's it's crazy that, that she was able to find that. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, so she was a great researcher. And what was funny was my dad was serving in the army in Korea uh, towards the end of the Korean War. He writes my mother and says, "Keep him out of the newspapers." 
Uh, it obviously didn't quite work. <laughs> well, that was the beginning of uh, that uh, Parks and Rec focused request to to build a zoo. Uh, there's a there's a nice through line there to to a lot of the different lessons that you apply in this. I wonder. I wanted to connect that to sort of the the communications methods that you learned and gained through through your career uh, that affected the the way that you changed how people campaign. Um, I remember, uh, and uh, in 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 the Steve Kornacki uh, podcast that was about uh, that was based on sort of his focus on on uh, this period of time. Uh, he does talk and, uh, and interviews a couple of people who would ride around uh, when they were state legislators and listen to the the go pack tapes, the uh, the cassettes that had all of this different uh, you know advice and guidance on on how to campaign. I remember those tapes uh, from when I was a kid, uh, and uh, and my dad would listen to them, and uh, I knew that you know other people that that he knew that were interested in local politics would listen to them. That kind of had an effect in terms of teaching a whole generation of people how to communicate differently, a generation of Republicans who were seeking guidance on that point. What made you start to uh, to feel like you could, you know, not that you had the knowledge not just to communicate in a different way, but that you could teach uh, a, a a widespread audience of people that there would be that would be eager to hear what you had to say? Uh, look, I, I think that's a very important question, and I, I think there are basically three answers. The first is, starting in 1979 as a freshman, I did a great deal of work with the Army's Training and Doctrine Command, which was inventing a new battle doctrine called Airland Battle, and had the challenge of how do you get an entire Army and an Air Force to change how they think about what they're going to do. So I'd really been inside the room with people who had a very complicated, very important job, uh, which involved thinking through a doctrine and training it. And so I had that background as a part of it. Uh, and that was, a, that was a key thing. Second, as I looked at campaigning, I realized the, the challenge wasn't money. The challenge was knowledge. Uh, we had lots of people raising money. They just didn't know anything, and they didn't know how to campaign. They didn't know what they stood for. And the difference between Reagan and Thatcher, both of whom were uh, people who were driven by principle and driven by philosophy. Uh, you may remember Thatcher once, when she was the opposition leader, went to the party's conference and pulled out of her handbag Hayek's Constitutional Liberty. It must have been a giant handbag because that's a, like, <laughs> like a 600-page book. And she said, people ask, what is our platform? And she slams Hayek's book on the podium. And she says, this is our platform. We are for freedom. <laughs> so, but she believed it. Ray, if you go back, I always tell people, go to YouTube, pull up Reagan's speech from October of 1964. It's right there. And it is a brilliant speech as it, make, it makes an enormous difference. And I think you will see from that speech that Reagan believed deeply in a set of principles which he followed his whole life. Uh, and so I think that's the sort of place where I, I felt we had to do that. The third thing that happened was I was in Michigan. John Engler, who became governor eventually, at that time was the Senate minority leader. And he'd invited me to come out and talk to the legislators. Uh, and... We were meeting on a Monday morning, and after the breakfast, he said to me, do you realize a lot of these guys got up at 2 in the morning to drive in to be at this Monday morning breakfast to hear you? And I said, they drove in? Because I was a congressman. Congressmen fly. Mm -hmm. 
He said, yeah, they, they all drive in every week. And I suddenly realized, I remembered my own experience because I ran three times, lost twice. When you're a candidate, you're in the car all the time. And suddenly a light went off in my head and I thought, you know, they have lots of empty hours. What if I filled them with knowledge? And so we invented the tape program at its peak. We had 55,000 people getting the tape every month. Joe Gaylord created the Campaign Academy, and he estimated that over the years, he taught 90,000 people uh, in various schools. Uh, but I also was reminded, and this is part of why I wrote uh, March the Majority, we need, again, a cultural change in the Republican Party. We need to go back to being a people-oriented, idea-oriented, argument-oriented party that has a vision of the future, understands the American people, and is willing to work. And, and McCarthy did this, as you pointed out brilliantly, uh, in the last 100 days uh, on the debt ceiling fight. You have to know what you're going to say. You have to say it over and over, and you have to communicate. And that means you have to communicate through the media by just sheer brute repetition. You uh, tell a story about midway through the, the book about uh, participating – uh, I didn't know that, uh, that that this was something that you had done uh, in the the AM radio, as you frame it, precursor to Crossfire, which had Pat Buchanan and Tom Braden uh, debating, and Buchanan got into some contract dispute with them. They asked you to fill in, and uh, and that you know was a situation where you were debating back and forth, you know, with someone on the opposite side. One concern that I have about the way that our uh, our current Republicans sort of behave is that a lot of essentially the, the debates don't happen anymore because they, they tend to be with uh, uh, people who are members of the media who pretend to not be leftist Democrats with an agenda, even though they overwhelmingly are. Uh, and, uh, and so you don't have the same kind of opportunity to, debate as you might have had back in the day um, when that was still a thing that was on television even. Uh, I still think that one of the worst things Jon Stewart did was was kill the original Crossfire because at least then you had, you know, two people disagreeing, going back and forth. Uh, how can we get back to a point of, of uh, kind of sharpening ourselves up, being able and capable to debate these various points when people increasingly are inhabiting these media silos uh, and even in their own lives, we see kind of less and less interaction between left and right where such debates can take place. Well, I think, I mean, one of the lessons I learned from the Army was was a, a term, listen, learn, help, and lead. And I think that's really important. I think uh, beyond debating, in a true debate, you listen to the other side. Mm -hmm. And then you try to answer their arguments. But you, you have the respect that they do have a position. And that position is worth knowing so you can either, one, change your own mind, uh, or two, you can explain to them why you don't agree and offer hopefully a superior argument. Um, I think we'll, I think we will get back to that. Uh, I was fascinated after the vote the other night on the debt ceiling to watch McCarthy hold this press conference with the entire Capitol Hill press corps. And it's, it's really a, a worth pulling up for people. Uh, because I thought it was it was almost a master class in how to do it uh, and how to take questions and answer them cheerfully and happily uh, and and uh, be part of the dialogue. And, and you know, when, when I debated Braden, I mean, Braden was a liberal. 
There wasn't any confusion about this. I found, though, when, when Crossfire came to me after I'd run for president and asked me to come back and do uh, revive Crossfire, it didn't work. And I think the reason it didn't work was the American public are now so tired of kind of a, a confrontational debate style. I think that a, a close, something closer to the Lincoln-Douglas debate, something where you actually explain your position and the other person explains their position and you ask each other intelligent questions as opposed to scoring points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's worth reading. Uh, 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 C-SPAN put out uh, probably the best single edition of, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates that's ever been printed, which is very hard to put together because it wasn't transcribed in a normal way. Uh, and when you read them, you realize these, these two guys were serious intellectuals. And, and, and Lincoln and Douglas are making a profound argument about the nature of America. And they're doing it uh, in a way that is sort of amazing to watch. And I, th- I think that, frankly, the current debate system, the, the gotcha stuff, which yeah. uh, when, I, when I ran in 2012, uh, I deliberately methodically turned back on the media. And I, I would play sort of counter gotcha. You know, you come at me, I'm going to come back at you very aggressively. And I found that it worked amazingly well because the public by then, at least on the conservative side, the public was so sick of the news media mm-hmm. that even in 12, there was a huge upside to taking them head on. Uh, and, yeah. and of course, they couldn't help themselves. No, <laughs> no they couldn't. They never can. Uh, but but one element of that that I wanted to, uh, wanted to follow up on is, to me, one of the things that runs throughout your story um, in in March of the Majority uh, is you you actually you try to do things or you or you try to assume that people will rise to the level that you're talking to them at, meaning that you don't talk down to the audience. The reason that those tapes I feel like worked so well is because you were imparting knowledge, but you were also assuming that the person listening had the capacity to understand what you were talking about. And it seems to me that a lot of the time, uh, politicians in particular make a mistake of, uh, but the media does as well, of thinking that they have to dumb everything down to a certain level. Uh, and when in, fa- in fact, I think that, you know, people, you know, you can, you can find, uh, you know, some of, some of the most well-read people that I know uh, work with their hands. You know, they, they don't actually, you right. know, they, they're the kind of the people who they listen to very, you know, they listen to, you know, serious audio books and they, you know, they listen to three hour long podcasts where people are talking to each other about things. And, and to me, it's one of these things where, the the news media and the political class, I think, tends to think that that voters and people who are politically engaged are operating at a much lower level than they actually are. Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. Um, I always tell the folks I work with on in writing that I want Hemingway, not Faulkner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that I mean I want simple, declarative, easy to understand. But that doesn't mean that Hemingway was simple. No. Uh, Hemingway is doing a lot of very subtle and very complex things, but he's doing them with great clarity. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say if you go back to Reagan, Reagan had enormous respect for the intelligence of the American people. But he also understood you had to – and Lincoln, Lincoln is even better at this. I mean, Lincoln had a rule that I unfortunately don't always follow that you should always speak slowly because people need to be able to think through your last sentence – before you give them the next sentence. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so Lincoln would write, and if you go back and read his writing, it is astonishing. You know, he would write very carefully to communicate very elegant ideas in very direct language. I mean, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, in fact, is a very sophisticated concept. But it's said so simply and with such clarity that virtually everybody can grasp it. And I think uh, that that what I tried to do is I tried to emulate people like that. I mean, I think my you know, my model was not Jefferson, who was wonderfully eloquent, but frankly wrote above most people. Uh, my model yeah. really was the kind of clarity of a Lincoln or a Reagan or FDR, who's you know FDR wrote all of his fireside chats to an illiterate upstate New York farmer who was dead. But he knew him personally as a young man. And his theory was that if he could speak clearly enough that that farmer would understand it, that everybody in America would understand it. And that was his model. So let me ask you, based on that, all of that, how do Republicans, when it comes to the investigative side of what they're doing toward uh, the Bidens, uh, both their their family financial connections, you know, any everything coming out of Hunter, obviously, which I think people are a little more familiar with, but a lot of these other questions that have been uh, significantly raised regarding family finances and and foreign uh, dollars flowing into their coffers, how do they communicate that to the American people in a clearer way? You may have seen the question thrown that seemed to throw off John Kirby. Uh, from a New York Post reporter this week uh, about the majority of the American people in in a recent poll, uh, you know, believing that uh, the president is 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 corrupt, uh, and you know that seemed to surprise him. But it's something that I think is is uh, indicative of the level of of awareness that this is something where the president has dodged all these questions, hasn't answered them, hasn't provided any transparency or sunshine, and so people are assuming there's something there. But it's a complicated story. So how do you tell it in a in a straightforward and simple way uh, to help people understand what's going on there? You know, I mean, one of the purposes of studying Lincoln is that Lincoln, they, they used to say that Lincoln was the best lawyer in Illinois with a good case and Douglas was the best lawyer in Illinois with a bad case. But what they were really saying, if you if, if you're a litigator, you have to speak in such a way that the jury can understand you. And you always have, I always tell people, all communication occurs in the mind of the listener or the reader. Doesn't it? It's not what I say, it's what you hear. And so I have to work back from what do I want you to hear. Um, and I would say to the, the investigative Republicans who, who are doing an important job, be calm, be very fact-oriented, and be reasonable. I mean, is there a reasonable explanation for a $3 million check from a Chinese company to the Bidens? Is there a reasonable explanation for why Burisma would appoint somebody who knew nothing to their board and pay him that level of money? Uh, is there a reasonable case for why the widow of the mayor of Moscow sent $3 million to, to him? And I think you want, to, you want to approach it so that people open up their minds and start thinking, one, you want the facts to get – it has to be a fact-based case, not an allegation-based case. And that's where I think what Comer's doing is so devastating because they are day by day pulling out material and they're getting parts of the bureaucracy to cooperate against other parts of the bureaucracy. So you're now seeing a real split inside the system. 
uh, between those who are disgusted by what's going on and those who are actually doing what's going on. And I think uh, over time, I, I have, this again is pure Reagan, or pure Lincoln, but I have enormous faith in the American people. Uh, given enough time, they will talk to themselves, they will think it through, they will reach a judgment. And once they reach a judgment, they are astonishingly firm. And that's why I think, frankly, I mean, Biden is gone and just doesn't know it yet. You know, uh, one thing that you draw out in this book uh, is how small of a team you had that uh, that formed uh, both the, the contract campaign uh, and, you know, did all of the work that was essential to this project. Uh, and one thing that I've, I don't think I've ever asked you for in terms of your, uh, the various conversations we've had over the years, uh, how do you find the people, especially on a small team like that, uh, who you can have confidence in and be effective? You know, hiring well is such a, an important skill, recruiting the right people and kind of, of uh, you know, fi- finding and cultivating uh, that talent or knowing that they will, cult- you know, help cultivate themselves and be self-starters in various roles is a, is a critical one. Uh, not all po- political leaders and certainly uh, uh, very few politicians uh, necessarily have the skill for something like that. What are some of the key signs for you uh, when it comes to making those types of, of key decisions in hiring? Well, I mean, I have to say today at, at uh, Gingrich 360, we have about a dozen people and they're all amazingly smart. They all work very long hours. They're all totally committed to what we're trying to accomplish. And I think that's part of it. I mean, I'm just going to talk about my particular experience. I don't know if this is true of other people. First, you have, you have to set idealistic goals that are exciting and that are transformative where people say, boy, I would like to be on that. I, I, years ago, I read a, a paper that was a study of people who go on these kind of, of ventures where you have, you know, Odysseus or you have, uh, you know, crossing the American prairie in a wagon train or whatever, where the experience of being together becomes a bonding, reinforcing, and, and I think ultimately energy-giving kind of thing. Second, um, you the leader has to exhibit whatever they expect. I mean, I, anybody who, who is followed me for years, and you and I have known each other a long time. I work extraordinarily hard. Uh, I work seven days a week because what I think we're doing in trying to save the American system is so important that it it, it is the definition of my life. It's not, you know, um, I, I once called Gaylord late at night because I was feeling bad, and I said, I'm spending my life doing this. He said, that's nonsense. You have made the decision that this is your life. <laughs> Now, either live it out because this is your life or go get a new life, but you're not <laughs> spending your life. Yeah. And, I, and it, was, it was very helpful to sort of sh- like a cold water, uh, <laughs> you know, to stop and go, yeah, I guess I, my dad's career had been 27 years in the infantry. And in many ways, my career is an extension of his. Uh, I, I regard myself as a citizen. I try to make a little money on the side, but I spend seven days a week trying to figure out how to help save the country. And I think for the kind of people we attract, that's an exciting thing. They're part of actually changing history, uh, and they're part of actually trying to get something big done. And so, you know, I mean, Reagan had that. The, the core group around Reagan had been with Reagan for 20 years because it was real. And and to his credit, I mean, both Biden and Clinton had a, had a charismatic ability to draw people to him. You know, Biden basically took the Senate staff to the White House 
well, that may not have been good for him in the long run, but but it showed a kind of loyalty. I mean, the, the people who are around him right now protecting him and trying to nurture him are people who genuinely have deep affection for him. And that's a very important part of this. You, these kind of groups precisely, uh, Hubert Humphrey once said, precisely because politics is so savage, loyalty is so valuable. Yeah. And I think that that's a part of it is you look for people who are both competent, committed, and loyal. And that then grows into sort of an extended family that's very real. Um, last question. Uh, I my daughters are a little too young for this, uh, but but my eldest daughter uh, does love zoos. So if she was an 11 year old with a mindset that her town, her city should have a zoo, uh, what would your advice be to her to try to achieve that dream? Uh, and what would be the key exhibit that makes a great local zoo? <laughs> Well, I, I would say my, my first advice would be set up a website. Uh, you know, our, sort of our town needs a zoo. Uh, and then get pictures, you know, go online and get pictures of really cool animals around the world. And once a day say, we should have an animal like this in our zoo. Uh, you know, somebody, uh, we did a podcast, as, as you know, I do this, this podcast at, at yes. Gingrich 360 called Newt's World. And we did a podcast with the director of the National Zoo the other day. And, they have a a film clip of the pandas sliding in the snow, which has been seen by six billion people. <laughs> it's one of those things that went viral, and, and people, as she said, I have seen reason, that clip. I have seen right. that clip. <laughs> but for some for some reason, she said, pandas make you happy. <laughs> There's just something about what, how they look that they that they they make us happy. And she said, people will turn this clip on and just watch it. And in the middle of their day, if they're feeling down, they'll watch the pandas and they feel happier. <laughs> so uh, I would say to your daughter, there are so many clips and so many pictures. And then, frankly, she should nag her two parents to not be selfish, but instead make a list starting with the National Zoo since you're in Washington. Then go to go up to Baltimore, then to Philadelphia, which is the oldest zoo in America, then to the Bronx Zoo, which is one of the great zoos of the world. And your parents should regularly take you to zoos. I mean, you owe her that. I can't believe you're not doing it already. Well, she's what two years old already. We literally just took her to the aquarium the other day in Baltimore. So yes. Well, there. I feel I feel better already about about how you and Megan are doing. Well, uh, thank you so much, Mr. Speaker. You've been generous with your time. Uh, and uh, the the book, uh, again, March to the Majority, uh, is one that I think uh, really should be essential reading for people who are uh, interested in politics, but also interested in getting into politics. And uh, the lessons in it, I think, are, are very important for people to learn today. So, Thank you, thank Ben. You so and I look forward to the next issue of The Transom. So I am obviously paying attention to the 2024 stakes, and I think that it's, you know, uh, becoming of all of us to, to pay attention to them. But it is interesting to me that there's some certain dynamics that are at play in this race that were not in play in either 2020 or in 2016. Some of those dynamics, I think, are known to all of us, but there are a couple that I think are kind of underlying a lot of the different motivations of, of people involved in this race. Today, I got in my inbox an email from Donald J. Trump for president uh, promoting a take by one Bill Kristol, formerly of the Weekly Standard, 
now of the Bulwark, which is obviously you know a, a fake conservative site that pretends to be conservative, but is in reality run and edited by someone who's voted for every Democrat since John Kerry. Uh, and I think that this is one of the things that you know is is kind of telling about this Trump campaign. It just seems a little bit off, a little different. Why would you be pr- promoting someone, someone's views, you know, in in the person of Bill Crystal? who dedicated their efforts to undermining you as a general general election candidate, not just once but twice, in 2016 and in 2020? Why would you be putting something out there saying that he's called you the alpha in the race? Well, it seems to me that there are a lot of people in media who want to have the old Trump clicks back, the eyeballs, the paying attention to him on screen. They want to benefit from that financially. They want to bring in the money. They want to bring in the donor money in the case of someone like Crystal, who's obviously got numerous nonprofits and his own uh, corporate entity in that media uh, site that that shall not be named again. But it also is one of these situations where those people really have uh, the death of the Republican Party as their priority. Why would Donald J. Trump, Republican leader, former president, be promoting people like that and their views? Sure, I mean, they, they might say things that, you know, along the lines of liking him or saying that he's the dominant person in the race. But, you know, look at Joe Scarborough. Look at the entire cast of CNN and MSNBC. These are not people who are promoting Donald Trump within this primary because they want to see him as president again. They're promoting him because they want to go through a general election with him, getting eyeballs and clicks and all of the financial revenue that they see, uh, you know, floating above them just out of reach. You know, if he's the candidate again, that has nothing to do, obviously, with their actual ideological priorities there. They're no different than former FBI head James Comey, who his legs crossed in a bizarre and definitely unmanly fashion on Jen Psaki this weekend was saying, you know, that he is emphatically for uh, Joe Biden uh, and that he's uh, grateful that he's uh, that he's willing to serve. Look, the simple fact is this. These people want Republicans to lose. They believe that Donald Trump is a loser. Now, whether they're right or not, we should take every single compliment that is paid to him from them with a grain of salt. Because as soon as he is the nominee, if he is the nominee, they will turn on him in force and then try to profit from the fact that they're going to be bashing him all day long. CNN fell apart as soon as as Trump exited the stage. Their actual, you know, uh, terrible viewership was something that led to the ouster of numerous different people from their network, including their, you know, top executives. But it's also a, a situation here where we have to understand the motivations of the people involved on a lower level, namely that they would like to have Trump back to beat him up like a pinata for a year and then profit along the way all the way to what they hope will be a Joe Biden re-election. From my perspective, Donald Trump and his campaign should not be promoting that type of praise because it only reminds us the kind of people who are going to be there waiting at the edges to just knife him all over again and come up with whatever the next dossier is. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the first. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.